A little leftover from last week, we were studying Acts chapter 15, and if you would go back there for just a moment, I want to uh, stress, and uh, I'm not sure I did stress this enough in Acts 15, but even though the Holy Spirit is not giving a direct revelation here in this chapter regarding circumcision, the Holy Spirit is nevertheless very active, and these men speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit has already revealed. And also in Acts 15, verse 28, as we conclude that uh, discussion that they had there, notice with me, if you will, Acts 15, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So let's not think that the Holy Spirit is not active in what's going on here. He's not directly revealing a particular answer to these men. He's allowing them to come to the answer that's already been revealed. But after they do so, in verse 28, the Holy Spirit seems to be active in making sure that they are sort of have a certification that this is the proper thing to go ahead and let the churches know this uh, determination. All right, let's go to the chapter review. If you were not here last week, we're going to do, instead of doing questions each week, we want to do chapter reviews on the book of Acts. Chapter 1 was the ascension of Jesus and the choosing of Matthias. Chapter 2 is beginning of the church. Chapter 3 is the lame man healed, and that leads to what happens in chapter 4. They're arrested, the apostles are arrested and threatened. And then what happens in chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira at the end of the chapter. So what of a follow-up to chapter 4? What happens? The apostles are arrested again. They're actually beaten at this point in time, Acts 5, Acts chapter 6, the Grecian widows neglected, chapter 7, Stephen is stoned, and those things, as you'll see on the left-hand side, these things happen in the area of Jerusalem, and now as we expand into chapter 8, we didn't cover these last week, but let's go ahead and look over these. Quickly, chapter 8 is the persecution spreads the gospel. At the end of the chapter, the Ethiopian eunuch, his conversion. What happens in chapter 9? Saul's conversion. What about chapter 10? Cornelius is converted. And along about this point in time, most of us kind of drift off and we kind of forget about what the chapters are about. If you're like me, I, I start, start forgetting here after chapter 10. What happens in, if you'll remember it this way, in chapter 10, Cornelius' conversion, as a follow-up to that, chapter 11 gives us a sort of a summary of what happened there, and Peter recounts the Gentiles' conversion there in chapter 11. What about chapter 12? Herod is the governing ruler. He puts to death James and wants to put to death Peter. So I just put this as Herod, James, and Peter. They're all related in this idea. 
They're finding governmental persecution here, oppression in the face of the gospel. One reason I like to go over that is because there are other books in the New Testament that are tied to the book of Acts in, in several ways. Many of these directly and some of them indirectly, but I think there's about 12 books listed here. These 12 books have a lot of relation and ties to what happens in the book of Acts. So if you go to 1 Thessalonians, for example, Paul will recount what happened in the book of Acts. And you can go back to the book of Acts and reference that. So that's one reason I think it's interesting and good, beneficial for us to note cities, specific cities in the book of Acts, what happened there, and because this helps us in our study of all these epistles later on. Just thought that was interesting to notice that and see the benefit of doing that. I'm not just simply going through this exercise uh, just to exercise. So let's uh, look now at Acts chapter 16. We have begun the second journey actually at the end of Acts 15 verse 40. Paul chose Silas, went forth being commended by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia. So if you'll note on the screen here on the right-hand side, Antioch of Syria, that is our home base, Paul is going to go from there in a sort of a northwesterly direction. He's going to go up through Syria and Cilicia, which is at the top corner of the Mediterranean Sea. These are areas that he had already been to, apparently from Galatians chapter 1. He had already been there uh, some years previous to this. So he goes back through this area. Uh, now that he is split from Barnabas and goes to edify these churches in this area. And you'll note as we have this on the screen, I'll just highlight these before we continue on the, the uh, PowerPoint. You'll notice from there he goes to Derby. As you follow that line, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and back to Antioch. And those we read about in the past couple of weeks, we've studied about in the first journey, he go, went to those cities of Galatia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. He's going to go back through those. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that in this chapter. Our focus is from that point to go on over, if you go way on over to the left-hand side of the screen, to Troas, which is at the seacoast, and we're eventually headed up to the top of the top left-hand side there, Philippi. That's where most of our study today will take place. All right, Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> he came also to Derby and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewess that believed, but his father was a Greek. The same was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, we mentioned briefly last week about Timothy being circumcised and Titus being circumcised, or not being circumcised, and we have not a conflict there if we understand that as Timothy was circumcised here, of course we would understand it was willingly, but it was for the benefit of the Jews that were in those parts in verse 3, it was for their benefit, so there wouldn't be a hindrance to the gospel, to the furtherance of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, Titus is not 
I like the word it uses there in my version, compelled. He was not compelled to be circumcised when he went with Paul. Galatians chapter 2. To have given in to that point in time for Titus, it would have been to give in to these people that believe that circumcision is essential to the gospel. But he did not do that. So Timothy here willingly and for the benefit of the progress of the gospel, so it would not be hindered, was uh, circumcised. I want you to stop and think about, and, and obviously to me the way this reads, it's highlighting Timothy and his character and the person that he was. Timothy being a young man was really not wet behind the ears, as some might tell you. Some might tell you that he is wet behind the ears, didn't know what he was doing. Certainly, he didn't have the seasoning and experience that Paul did. But I want to submit to you that Timothy was very, very capable of doing what was ahead of him. I don't think from the end of chapter 15, we see Paul as a very discriminating person. I don't think he would have taken somebody that was dead weight. Timothy, we already know from reading 1 Timothy, or rather uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, about his bringing up. His mother and his grandmother had taught him the scriptures. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, he had known the sacred writings from the time he was a babe. He had known all these and learned all these things. And no doubt he was ready to go. He was ready and prepared to go. Also, if you think about what happens in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, when Paul and Silas and the company had gone, departed from Thessalonica, Paul was urgently concerned about what was happening there in Thessalonica, so he sent Timothy back. This is not many months after what we're reading right here. It's not very long. So Timothy is a very capable young man, though he is young. He's, he doesn't have the experience that Paul has, but I would submit to you that Timothy is very, very ready to go, and very capable young man, albeit. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them the decrees to which the, uh, to keep which the ordained, that had been ordained to the apostles and elders that were at Jerusalem, <clears throat> and if you have any difficulty with that idea of being ordained by men... Please go back there and reference chapter 15, verse 28 that we read at the outset. These things, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And the elders that were at Jerusalem, they gave these decrees, these things to be taught in the churches. So verse 5, the churches were strengthened in faith and increased, increased in number daily. In chapter 15, we had a, a doctrinal difficulty, a doctrinal roadblock, if you will, what are we going to do? <clears throat> it had the potential to destroy churches, local churches. It had the potential to divide a lot of people. But what do we see the church doing? Acts chapter 16, verse 5. Once again, in the book of Acts, we see once again the church is growing. It is multiplying. It is increasing in number daily. Even though we've been through persecution, we've been through apostle being stoning, we've been through internal uh, problems, 
in the church in chapter 6. We've been through doctrinal difficulty, doctrinal division, but yet the church keeps growing and increasing. And that's a lesson for us as well. Verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden of the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And they were come over against Mysia. And they essayed to go, they determined to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus suffered them not. I want you to look on the map once again. As we were going up that line, northwesterly past Antioch, we've got Phrygia on one side, Galatia on the other, and then we're going kind of uh, sort of between the areas of Asia and Bithynia. Now, at this point, what happens? Why is Paul hindered? To go, he wants to go to Galatia, or rather Asia. Asia would be a very populated area. It would be a very natural next step for him to go into, in Bithynia as well, but particularly Asia, I think of being a very natural next step for him to go. So why is he not allowed to go? The Spirit hindered him. We don't know at this point, but as we read on in Acts, I think it becomes quite obvious to us what the the Spirit was leading him to. Now, I want you to pause here and just think for a moment about Paul and Silas and maybe the frustration that comes. They're doing good and spreading the gospel and the kingdom and doing this work, and then they are hindered. We, We read through this very quickly. It comes very quickly for us. We just read right through it one verse after another. But I want you to understand the, the frustration of being hindered from doing a good work over here in Asia. Paul probably had in mind to really do a lot of good work in those cities, but he's hindered. Imagine how frustrating it is. It's the same way for you and I today when we're frustrated about doing good in the kingdom of God, yet we're hindered in various ways from doing the good that we want to do sometimes. That happens. Happened a lot to Paul. At the end of Romans, Romans chapter 15, Paul had wanted to go to Rome for many times, but he said, Satan has hindered me these many times from coming to you. He wanted to do good. He was doing good in the kingdom But sometimes certain things we cannot do that we want to do in the kingdom. And I think Paul probably had that frustration as well. Verse 7, when they were come over against Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, and and the Spirit of Jesus suffered them not. And passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. So at this point, at the end of verse 8, they're maybe bewildered about what they're going to do. What's next for us? Where are we being led? And we don't know. And sometimes we don't know where God is leading us, do we? We don't know where he's taking us. But the next verse, what happens? We may not have a vision as this today, but we have signs along the way. Verse 9, what happened? We call him the man from Macedonia. Man from Macedonia says, come over and help us. Now, 
remember, Macedonia is a region. I think it would show you this on this map here. That Macedonia is a region here <clears throat> that includes the key cities that we're interested in in the study would be Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. You'll note those on the left-hand corner of the map. This Macedonian man says, come over and help us. Did he give them specifics of where to go, what to do, who to see? No. There's a clue for Paul and Silas of what direction to go. Go this direction, perhaps. They still, uh, even though the Holy Spirit is active in this book, we're not to think that the Holy Spirit is telling them every turn and thing to do and every city to go and every person to speak to. That is simply not the case. The Holy Spirit is helping out in certain ways, but it's up to men to spread the gospel. Verse 9, the Macedonian man stands up in the vision and says, come over and help us. Verse 10, when he had seen the vision straightway, we sought to go forth into Macedonia, concluding and understanding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, the, God, the Holy Spirit is not revealing every little detail. They have to figure this out on their own. And also notice, notice incidentally, at verse 10, straightway we sought to go. That pronoun we would apparently include the writer Luke in this company as well at this point in time. So Luke being the writer of the book of Acts here in is apparently in the company now. We don't know exactly how this all came about, but now it seems that he is included as he begins using this pronoun, we. All right, we'll catch up on our outline here. We've looked at, he's gone through Syria and Cilicia. Uh, verse five, 1 through 5, he picked up Timothy at Lystra. Verse 6 through 7, he goes through these regions of Phrygia and Galatia, but not into Asia and Bithynia. Then he sees the man from Macedonia. And then the rest of the chapter will be uh, verse 11 through 40 will be the study of what happens in Philippi. Any thoughts or comments up to verse 10? Yes. We would do that kind of thing back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And in verse 20, he said, To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And 21, To those who are without law as without law. That would be the Gentiles. Verse 22, uh, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. So Paul would behave in a way, depending on his audience, <clears throat> so as not to be objection, in other words, try to fit in so that they would be more likely to listen to what, what he had to say. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he wouldn't do something that was sinful to fit in, but as much as he could, he wanted to be not objectionable to his audience. Right. Very good. Very good. He would not allow, I don't think he would have allowed Timothy or Titus, either one apparently, to be compelled to be circumcised in order to satisfy some Judaizing teachers that as we saw last week. I have another comment over here. Yes. 
It might seem foreign to us to have um, these kind of barriers to the gospel, but I've heard even, and some people here can testify to this maybe even more firsthand, that in places I've, I've heard that, such as Russia and the old Soviet Union countries, a teacher is not well accepted and wouldn't be um, respected if he hadn't grown a beard and facial mm-hmm. hair and things like this. And so these, these things can easily, maybe this is not as sort of a drastic a change as circumcision, mm-hmm. but these things can easily continue to be barriers. And taking those out of the way is plainly what we need to try to do for the sake mm-hmm. of the gospel. Very good, very good. Okay. Verse 11, we pick back up and we're headed to Philippi. Setting sail, verse 11, therefore from Troas we made a straight course to Samothrace and the day following to Neapolis and from thence to Philippi, which is a city of Macedonia. The first of the district, a Roman colony, we were in this city tearing certain days. So the, the place that they're headed here is Philippi. Philippi is a very prominent city. And a city uh, apparently full of Roman citizens, a very prestigious city, we might call it, a very significant place. And uh, all of this, I want you to think about, I don't have it highlighted on the map here, but we're in the Roman Empire. We're traveling the Roman Empire. Roads and travel has become quite easy in this era for people to travel, for word to travel. For the gospel to spread. So uh, it's very beneficial for the gospel to spread as well. They're in Philippi and uh, they apparently have no synagogue apparently at this point to go to as they have previously. So where do they go to find people that are interested in study and prayer and interested in God? They apparently have seen or heard that On the riverside, there's women that have gathered there together to study, to pray. Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went out without the gate by riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spake unto the women women that were come together, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, one that worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened to give heed unto the things which were spoken by Paul. She was one that worshiped God, but was she saved at this point? She's not, is she? She's one that worships God. Lydia, a seller of purple, apparently to have a market for the seller of purple, you're probably going to be in a city with people that are well-to-do. And I think perhaps we would understand that Philippi is a city like that. It's a city of people that are well-off. A city uh, that has a great number of Roman citizens. And we'll talk more perhaps about the Roman citizenship in the later part of this chapter. She heard the, the things which Paul spoke, and her heart was opened. And verse 15, when she was baptized her house, at her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us, or insisted, she would not have it any other way, is the point. She would not have it any other way. She insisted that you come and stay with me and my household. It's a very hospitable new convert. And 
it seems kind of obvious that this new conversion that she had to Christ caused her heart to spill over and invite them and want them to stay with her. Stay with me. You're traveling. So let me help you with the things that you need. I want you to think about something here, too, that happens that is quite intriguing to me as I read about Lydia. In verse 15, who was baptized? Who does it indicate was baptized there? Not only Lydia, but her household. Perhaps that's some family members and some workers that she had, servants. We don't know what the makeup of that household is. But I find it impressive that it wasn't her by herself, but it was her and her household. What does that tell you about the influence that Lydia had upon these people? I have to stop and think about myself. Can I influence, do I have the influence over my household in that way? Do I have that type of influence over my household that we read and we study and we find what we need to do and we do it? It's not just her, it's her and her household. All throughout the Bible, you'd find it an interesting study to find out how many people it says they and their household. Think about Abraham, how he led his household toward God. Later in this chapter, even the Philippian jailer, I'll go ahead and you know it, but we'll see it in a moment. Even the Philippian jailer and his, those that were his, apparently many of his household. It's very impressive. We'll see another leader later in in, uh, the book of Acts that does the same. They and their household. That's, that's quite intriguing to me. Can I have a, as much influence over my household as these people did? Some of them that were not even followers of Christ, not even in the kingdom, and they held sway over their household that much. Very, very good lesson. Verse 16 the next character we run into in the place of Philippi is a, we're going to a place of prayer and a certain maid or certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us and brought her masters much gain by her soothsaying. And she yells out something that's true. What is that phrase that she hollers out? These people, Paul and Silas are identified as what? They are servants of the Most High God. That's good advertising, isn't it? That's very good advertising. Tell everybody. But Paul says, no, that's not good. Even though what she's saying is true, what she's saying is going to hinder the gospel. Paul sees that. And he puts up with it for many days in verse 18, and then eventually... He says, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So Paul does not want this type of advertising. This type of advertising would hinder the the gospel. It would not benefit the gospel for someone of this character to uh, be saying these things. 
Now, the problem is, what dilemma did Paul face? Now, let's don't read ahead or think ahead, but what dilemma is Paul facing? He's commanding this demon out of this young lady. But is this any ordinary young lady who is benefiting from her soothsaying? Many masters had uh, profited from her. Verse, the last part of verse 16, her masters had benefited much gain. They hadn't gotten much money from her soothsaying. What happens when you take someone's flow of money away? It hurts, doesn't it? We'll see that in Acts chapter 19. When those that were making shrines of Diana, their means of profit were taken away, same type thing happens, doesn't it? When you want to hurt people, you affect their pocketbook, they will not forget it, will they? They will not forget it. Nothing would bring out the ire of your enemies more than that particular thing. So look at on the screen, catching up with our outline, Lydia and the household is converted in verse 11 through 15. Then in verse 16 through 18, we see the soothsaying made and the demon is taken out of her. And I want you to think for a moment too, as we look at this slave girl, think about the potential problems without Thinking ahead, think about the potential problems that could cause Paul. Paul could continue to ignore that. Don't think about it. Forget about it. Because this could cause a lot of problems for you. But Paul is willing to get dirty. He's willing to get involved in a difficult situation. He's willing to get his hands dirty for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't want this to be reflected upon the gospel in this way. But he's willing to do whatever it takes, willing to suffer the consequences of a difficult situation. And we'll see that as we read on here. Verse 19. But when our master saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they, held, they laid hold on Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they brought them unto the magistrates, they said, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. They set forth customs which it is not lawful for us to receive or to observe, being Romans. Is what they accused them of accurate? You notice they didn't accuse them they brought them, bring them out and say, look at these men. They've taken the demon out of our slave girl. They didn't say that, did they? They didn't word it that way. What these men have done is laid forth customs, which it is not lawful for us to keep, being Romans. Think now that we're in, we have ventured into what we will call the Europe, European area now. We're into uh, an area where you have more Roman citizens, more Roman mentality. People are minded to, they live their lives with this mindset about being a Roman, and they find a lot of pride in that. They didn't bring up that accusation, did they, about the slave girl? 
they bring up an accusation a little twisted here in verse 20. These men being Jews, we don't like Jews in our area. They do exceedingly trouble our city and set forth customs which it is not lawful, verse 21, for us to receive or to observe being Romans. That's not quite accurate, is it? That's not what they were doing. Even if they had taught things that didn't agree with them, they weren't compelling them to keep these things in in opposition to your Roman citizenship. Verse 23, what did they do next? Laid many stripes upon them, cast them into prison. They tortured them, charged the jailer to keep them safely. Apparently, they had no point in time where they could stand up and speak on behalf of themselves. Notice this jailer. The jailer takes him in verse 23, takes them, and he cast them into prison to keep them safely. Verse 24 Not only did he just simply put them in prison, what did he do? How far did he go in his pursuit to keep them secure? Go in the inner prison, put them in stocks. This is not comfortable, not comfortable at all. Having their feet in stocks, apparently they would not be able to sit and get comfortable in any position whatsoever. Verse 24, the jailer, having received such a charge, cast them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Imagine the misery, if that would be. They've already been beaten with these rods, tearing the flesh and the back open, simply from the misery of that. And then having your feet in the stocks of the inner prison. Maybe Silas is thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know it was going to cost this much. Picture yourself as Silas, along with Paul, in the inner prison, so far from maybe a life of much greater ease in Jerusalem that he had, where he had hooked up with Paul. Yet at midnight, what happens? They begin singing and praying. And who, no doubt, is in the audience? All these fellow prisoners are in the audience Hearing and seeing what has happened to these men, no doubt they are a sight to behold at this point. They begin praying and singing to God at midnight. And suddenly what happens? Verse 26, a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bands were loosed. Imagine you yourself, picture yourself in the the jail. You're one of the prisoners, and all these prisoners are loosed from their bonds. What would they naturally do next? Leave. Let's get out of here. 
Well, not Paul and Silas. The jailer is afraid of his life because even though there has been an earthquake and all these things have happened beyond your control, they are loosed. It is his neck. It is his life that is in jeopardy. So he hollers out, or well, he tries to, he's going to kill himself in verse 27. The jailer being roused out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped because he fears for his life now. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do yourself no harm. We're all here. We're all present. He called for lights. He sprang in and he trembled before Paul and Silas. And he asked them a very significant question, knowing what has happened to them. Apparently, he's connecting these men with the ability and the knowledge of salvation. So what question does he ask? What must I do to be saved? Verse 30. Very great question he asks. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he's going from taking his own life now to gaining eternal life. Quite a swing that takes place in this man's life. Verse 31, they said, they responded, believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. Thou and thy house. Verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. And our denominational friends would stop here and say, see, that is the prescription for salvation. Believe on the Lord and thou shalt be saved. They would stop here in error because we're going to read in a couple of verses, what do they do at the same hour of the night? Why would they be baptized at the same hour of the night unless it is essential for salvation? Why would they do such a thing? Why wouldn't they wait for a few weeks until we get enough people that want to be baptized into your whatever denomination, and wait until an appropriate time. Why? Because it is essential. It is urgent. It's not something to be put off, is it? It's an urgent requirement. Believe in the Lord, thou shalt be saved. And then they, verse 32, they spake the word of the Lord unto them, perhaps more in depth, more in detail with all that were in his house. Notice we talked about that verse a moment ago all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, immediately. So not only Lydia, but apparently the Philippian jailer has enough influence on his household that they are baptized as well. Perhaps from hearing the events From hearing the words of Paul and Silas, and we see a token of repentance here in the washing of stripes, I believe. Verse 34, he brought them up into the house and set food before them, rejoiced greatly. Again, signs of repentance. Rejoiced greatly with all his house, having believed in God. And notice again, before we leave that, the belief included baptism. Any thoughts or comments up to this point? Yes, we have one over here, up to verse 34. 
Such a great occasion. Uh, Bruce, right here. I think it's interesting that the apostles, who many people say uh, even today were acting on their own, uh, when this woman with the demon approached them, they did the same thing Jesus did. Even the demons uh, believe and tremble. It, and they often said, thou art the son of God. You know, uh, what are you going to do with us? Uh, as Jesus preached, certainly uh, the Jews uh, constantly accused him of being of uh, Beelzebub or, or having a demon or being a demon. Think of what a tragedy that would be if Jesus allowed demons to be confessing him as, as Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. Uh, it would play right into the hands of those who rejected him and tried to stop him. And here mm -hmm. uh, they acted quickly as well. Second point, uh, even though the jailer believed, uh, just like the Ethiopian eunuch believed, uh, neither had had Jesus preached unto them. And that is essential to understand the complete uh, plan of salvation is to hear the word of Jesus Christ, uh, which teaches uh, the six points of hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, mm -hmm. being baptized, and, and living faithful unto the end. Uh, otherwise, it's simply blind faith, I think, and that's not what God calls for. Mm -hmm. Very good. Anything else? Yes, got a couple more back here. I just wanted to say back then, um, the reason Jailer was going to kill himself was because back then, if you lost your prisoners, they kill you. And um, so for them to be all sitting there and saying, here I am, you know, I'm not, I'm the, I didn't run away or anything was truly, truly in the Jailer's eyes, that was remarkable because that never, never happened. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and it shows that the jailer, even after he asked what to do to be baptized, he showed compassion to his prisoners. He washed their stripes, he took care of them, and then he made them comfortable so they could preach the gospel to him in his household. So, so he was very repentant of what he did. Okay. Yeah, I think we've got one more here. Just kind of recapping what you've already said there. Verse 32, they preached to the whole household. Verse 34, the whole household believed. In verse 33, the whole household was baptized. So it was all those that had heard the gospel and believed it. Same formula, if you will, you'd see in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and on through it's the same uh, events. He started at the point they were at. The, the, the hearers, he started where they were and then taught them the rest. Sometimes that's why we don't see all the, the entire formula in a given passage. I want you to think as we leave, this is a thought question. We'll, we'll cover this next week. What happens in the next paragraph? That Paul and Silas didn't get out of town. <clears throat> they didn't leave. And I want you to consider that as we head into the next week's uh, lesson and what happens as a result. But uh, appreciate your comments and your participation.